Wonderful praise of God, wonderful singing to his glory, and it is a blessing to be able to join together our voices in praise of the Lord. Well, this morning, congregation, we'll pick up again our preaching through the book of Mark, and we return then to come to chapter 12, if you turn there in your Bible, Mark chapter 12. Now, this section 1 through 12 is significant and weighty, and it's based in measure on a passage in the Old Testament, which I'm going to have us read in just a little bit in the middle of the sermon, so to speak. So don't uh, shut your Bible once we've finished in Mark chapter 12. Because we're going to see its background in Isaiah chapter 5 in a little bit. But here we come back now to the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we've come to what's tagged as chapter 12 and verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the living God. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants. And give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture in this congregation we just sang? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. As far as your congregation, God's glorious and perfect and unchangeable word. Let's come this morning and seek his help in prayer together, shall we? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you that this word rises above all other words around the world. This is true. In every way, it is right. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we submit to that, not unwillingly, willingly, but as we do submit to it, Lord, we pray that we would be by your Spirit moved in our hearts to say this is your word for us, to find here in your truth great consolation, comfort and help and direction, guidance, but also clarity, that we will ask questions about our standing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, in all of this, for you are able by your Spirit to do all of this perfectly and much more. And so we pray with confidence, asking in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have here a parable which recounts the history of God's patient love for diabolically disobedient Israel. That's kind of a mouthful. Recounts God's patient love for diabolically disobedient Israel. Now before I say any more, if you were to consider evaluating that statement about Israel, what would you say? Is that right? Is it true? Would you say rather, now Pastor Israel did pretty well. They were trusting. They were faithful. They walked with God. And I would of course remind you immediately to consider, for example, Exodus and how quickly they were saying, oh, that we could go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. We need to consider what it is the history shows as the background to this parable. Now, it's not just background. It's not just a history lesson, of course, as we'll see throughout the sermon. But Jesus is telling this parable while as, chapter 11 points out very clearly, while as the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders are standing there listening. They're right in front of him. They are the them, T-H-E-M, of verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 27, they are the representatives of Old Testament Israel seeking already to arrest and kill Jesus. And the evidences Jesus sets down to be evaluated is their, Israel's, Treatment of God's servants, the prophets, through history. Jesus is the prophet. Once again, as was in Israel's history, the religious elite are rejecting the one sent by God, the one who was sent by God to say, thus saith the Lord, they are rejecting those ones. And as he speaks this parable, now note this, in the very moment he is speaking to them, about his own autobiography, they are rejecting him at that very moment. The truth of the parable being played out at the moment that he is speaking it. And he shows us what he has endured for us. Jesus' parable shows the reality of his own arrival for a sinful people. There's a theme statement. It's in that handout, if you like, to follow or take notes in the bulletin. Jesus' parable shows the reality of his own arrival for a sinful people. Well, then, first of all, God planted a vineyard expecting growth. Verse 1, we take and we note this carefully. Verse 1, the man who planted, designed, built, rented, and departed about the vineyard, this is the Father. This was always the plan of the Lord. This parable flows directly out of the Old Testament, where, as I mentioned, we find very similar imagery in Isaiah chapter 5. If you don't mind, please turn there with me. It's very helpful to have this set before us. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And again, God's word. Isaiah 5, verse 1. 
I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. But, and that's one of those hugely significant words of transition in the Bible, the but right here as we'll see in the parable, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Now verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. What we're noticing, beloved, is this vineyard, this vineyard planted by the Lord Almighty is Israel in all of her blessings in God's care. And in Jesus' parable now, we see that the main target of that parable and interest in informing about that parable is those who inherited all that Israel stood for and now owned all of Israel's culpability. And that is indeed the chief priests, the teachers, and the elders. Israel should have been a harvest of gloriously good fruit. And yet, what there is, is only death. And here, of course, the Lord Jesus is primarily interested in explaining what's coming up for Him. Is the summation of the death to be found in Israel would be the death of the righteous and the glorious one at the hands of sinners. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, now thinking particularly about the parable, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of of Israel are, verse 1, the farmers to whom God entrusted care of the vineyard. But what grief they have caused. And so there is for us the church But what church are we? There is for us the church, the church now well into almost 25% through the 21st century. Stop and think about that. Wasn't it just Y2K? The church now well 25% into the 21st century. The responsibility and the calling falls upon us. The church of God's planting. Owing to our Heavenly Father, the planter, the the question of assessment. We need to assess how things are with us. Now, I'm not thinking primarily of us congregationally. Yes, that's true. But of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world today. How do things fare for the vineyard? What does it look like? 
we can ask that question now particularly for this primary reason. God spared no expense in making his vineyard. We aren't this morning taking up a study of Isaiah chapter 5, were we? I would cover, of course, much more detail. I will simply mention a very significant fact of Isaiah 5, which bears here. And John will pick up on this in his vineyard imagery that he uses regularly. The passage in Isaiah 5 says that God used, quote, the choicest of vines. That's a very rare Hebrew word, the sorek vine, which was extremely costly. We'd say super expensive. God used the most expensive vine possible. And of course the imagery is meant to say to us, His own dear Son. And that's the reason we can say, what does the vineyard look like? There should have been growth. We should expect it. We should be looking for it. The father, verse 1, plants the vineyard. He leaves it in charge and then the care of others and he goes away. And the expectation is, humanly speaking, now remembering it's a parable, the expectation is for growth, spiritual growth, church expansion. How is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ 25% through the 21st century faring? God planted a vineyard expecting growth. Secondly, God shows His patient love for His vineyard. This is so rich. It's so rich. Verse 2, At harvest time He sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The idea was that the payment owed to the to the one who created the vineyard would be payment received in the product produced there should have been good grapes a wonderful harvest so to speak but then we see man's sinful poison notice the title of the sermon god's passion which we see here in the parable. We'll explore it a little bit more. And in contrast to that, man's poison. And it's what we see, verses 2 through 8 of the parable. Murderous, violent poison like was with Cain comes roaring out. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. It's what was owed. But verse 3, they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. That's shocking. It's not supposed to happen that way. What does God do? We're not yet at that point of the parable where we say God killed. We're coming. We're going to get there need to learn something about our God. Verse 4, Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Is that enough? No. Verse 5, He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. Oh, beloved, 
how clear it is in the word of God, how different are humans from God. How patient is God. How long-suffering is the Lord. And of course, what we're meant to understand here is that the, the, the process it reveals the history. Which history? The history of God's patient love with His people Israel all through the Old Covenant, all through the Old Testament where God sent His servants, the prophets, to His people again and again to say, thus saith the Lord. And God's people would say again and again to the servants, we want our own way. Be gone with you. How is the church faring now 25% into the 21st century on these matters of Galatians chapter 5? Is there spiritual fruit to be harvested? Where God is patient with His church and He sends again and again His servants and His word to say, this is what God says to you and the result should be spiritual growth, a harvest. Now, That's the minor testimony, right? The sending of the servants called the prophets. That's the minor testimony. It's powerful, but it's not yet the most. The most comes, the major testimony, comes at verse 6. I want to go back to something we've been saying quite a bit in our series through Mark. There's a spotlight that operates in the book of Mark. Kind of like when you go to the theater, right? You're sitting there, you're waiting for the play to begin, and it's dark, and all of a sudden the curtain, you didn't, maybe didn't see it, but the curtain sneaks open, but you see that the spotlight shines. Then you can see the actor or the actress standing there beginning to quote the lines. That spotlight has occurred many times in Mark, and it is always focused on, and I'll say this, also always operated by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He means to draw the attention to himself in verse 6. Here it is. But he had one left to send, his son. And he might say at that moment, he doesn't, we're not, it's not recorded in the text. He might have said at that moment to those who are listening, the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders, and here I am. That's how we would rightly interpret this. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved, and it's me. They will respect my son. But, there again, one of those significant words of transition in the gospel, in the word, in the Bible. But, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They wanted their own way. They thought what they would do is their own thing. How great the Father's love for us, so rich beyond all measure. In a sense, beloved, we we are here this morning because of this parable. And also, we are living out this parable. Let's apply the parable in both directions for a moment. First, we are all here because the Father did not stop loving his people. We are all here this morning because the Father did not stop loving His people and went all the way in not changing His mind to the requirement of sending His Son for His people. When we read Genesis and we open up that initial account, we might say in chapter 2 and 3, why didn't you stop then? 
It doesn't get any better. Again and again and again, God is patient and loving in his loving kindness and his said his covenant faithfulness never, never changes his mind, always patiently enduring the sins of his people. And beloved, we are no different, you see. But we are here because, in a sense, this parable is true. As we hinted at in the prayer, he said to Abraham that the grains of sand would not be enough to number and the stars in the sky would not be enough to number the vastness of my congregation. So then when we get to the book of Revelation, what we see is a number, a crowd without able ability to be numbered. We're living in the midst of that. So even though Israel rejected Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the rest, listen, God persisted. Oh, how the church, how the Christian needs to know this. God persisted. If you have that adult child, if you have that grown-up grandchild, who was trained in a certain way, raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord and covenant words, told the gospel their whole life, and today, now, they're walking away. They've, they've distanced themselves from the Lord Jesus Christ. Please remember this passage. God persists. Don't stop praying. Don't stop pleading with God for that child or that grandchild. So we're here because of the parable, and that's true about many of us. God persisted with us. Have you ever stopped to realize what it means that you're a believer? You're a Christian. It's because God persisted with you and your parents and your grandparents. But secondly, we're living out the parable. God is harvesting fruit out of the true church worldwide. Yes, he is. But cautionary tale here. Yes, he is to the extent to which the true church is living out the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only one come down out of heaven full of grace and truth. If the church gets its focus onto other things, a secondary task, some other mission they think to be more important than setting before people the mercies of salvation in Jesus Christ, well then the fruit will not be gathered in. We need to set before God's people, yes, God's word, such that we will go and say to our neighbors, come in and be reconciled to God. So that the vineyard will be harvested. Thirdly, God reveals his holy judgment against those who reject his love. If I can put it in a phrase, this parable spoken by our Lord is a revelation of the doctrine of God. Or to put it differently, if we ask the question, who is God? What is he like? Jesus here answers these questions. In this parable, Jesus answers those questions. Is God loving? Yes. Is he patient and long-suffering? Indeed. And I hope those are things that you need to hear. Because I know I need to hear them regularly. With me, I need him to be patient and long-suffering. And so all of that is true. 
But then verse 9. After verse 8, they take him, and again, Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen about me. This is the future with me. After they take him and kill him and throw him out of the vineyard, not even allowed to be buried properly, but he's tossed over the wall, so to speak. Then verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Will you be surprised if people will doubt, deny, and reject what I'm about to say? That God will judge them. We live convincingly in a day that people deny that. They have no interest in hearing that God's going to judge anyone. Is God loving and patient and long-suffering? Yes, but He is also just and holy. God is pure in exercising judgment. His purity as an aspect of his person extends to his use of judging. He doesn't judge impurely or unjustly. He judges only righteously and perfectly. And his judgment when people reject him will be clear and sudden and incomprehensible and unending. There are people today who seek to run God over. There are groups and philosophies and, using the word carefully in air quotes, churches today that seek to run God into the dirt. And when humans mistreat God and disrespect God, do you know what God will do? Including the quote from Psalm 118. God will rage and roar against them. We must not miss this. The way the Lord Jesus Christ uses here, Psalm 118, is incredibly impressive. Haven't you read this scripture, he says to them, verse 10? The stone which the builders rejected. Who are the builders? They are the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. They are the quote-unquote Builders, the ones who are supposedly building up Israel, who are supposedly building up the church. They are the ones who, as the psalm prophesies, will reject the one who is the capstone, the one to whom all the glory should come, the one that holds everything together. They will reject the Lord Jesus Christ and they will suffer eternally for it. The result will be their demise. They will be cast down in His holy righteous wrath. And so it will be for church leaders and preachers who today deny, minimize, wreck the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is in their preaching and teaching. And this is just one simple application of this truth. But I want to draw us back again to this primary principle. How is it? How is it that humans come to know who God is? By what means do we come to know what He is like? You're thinking of the answer right now, aren't you? It's like you're at the candidacy exam, and you're being asked at the candidacy exam, 
What kind of revelation is there? And you answer, well, the Word of God is the primary revelation, and you're exactly right. Nature is a secondary kind of of revelation, but the Word of God is so much clearer, and it reveals who God is and what He is like, the Scriptures. So that we need not guess. So that we won't create a God of our own philosophies. This is who He is, This is what he's like. Now I set that before you so that I might say again to you, asking this question, what will the Father do to those who trample underfoot the Lord Jesus Christ? He will come and kill those ungrateful humans created in his image. And his killing is both without remedy and is eternal. Beloved, make no mistake about it. We have to read the Word as the Word and allow it to set things right for us so that we don't think we can rewire who God is. There's a glorious salvation that God has worked through Jesus Christ that we need to be telling each other about. I'll say that again, that we need to be telling each other about. A glorious salvation work through Jesus Christ that we can remind one another about. Even before we consider going out and speaking to our friends and neighbors, yes, we must do that, but let's begin it here. But then there's this other aspect of it. We need to say to one another, firstly, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by a believing faith. Trust in Him with all that is within you. And when people reject that, we then need to go on to the next thing and warn them of the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. I'm just going to ask this question. And I mean for you to ponder it. That's why I'm asking it. When last did you warn somebody of the consequences of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ? Or if that's too much to ask, let me just put it another way. It's a little bit softer, a little bit easier. When did you last consider in your own thinking, maybe I should warn that person of the consequences of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ? The tenants, verse 7, said to one another, Come, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they did the violent deed. And God will kill them. For trampling underfoot those who reject His covenant mercies in Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, so far, the text Now fourthly, the hearers of parables must ask if they have heard. What do we do with this text? It is, verse 1, a parable. That's a particular genre, type of, of writing in the Bible. It's not like other kinds of writings. It's a parable. How do we respond? What do we do with it? To answer that question, I want to bring us back now just for a brief moment to a text we dealt with quite a while ago. I should have looked it up when I preached this sermon, but turn back to chapter 4 of Mark. 
We're only going to be here for the briefest of moments. Chapter 4 of Mark. Because we're asking the question, what do we, what do, we do with parables? Look at Mark 4 and verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. But do you note... As we mentioned then when we were preaching on that passage, that what Jesus is referencing here is Isaiah. He's in chapter 6. I find it just interesting that we have Isaiah 6 earlier in Mark, and now we're dealing with Isaiah 5 in a certain way. I'll let you ponder that. But at least we can conclude this. To the true church, to the true church, The meaning and application of parables has been given. I want you to ask when and how. When has the true meaning of the parable and the application of the parables been given to me, you should be asking. And I'll say to you, points one, two, and three of the sermon. Why do I say that? Because the minister appointed by God is supposed to stand before God's people and say out of his mouth, Thus saith the Lord, fulfilling the prophetic office. So, what you have been receiving this morning thus far is the meaning and application of the parable. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this one. Have I been hearing? Have I been hearing? If I were to preach a sermon like this in in an entirely mixed crowd of 500 people that I didn't know, they just happened to be in a a sports stadium and I'm going to preach to them a sermon like this, the expectation would be that to many of them, not being believers, the word would go in one ear and click around for a few moments and then tumble out the other ear. You kind of know what I mean, right? In one ear and out the other. But the Christian hears. And what is it that you've heard? That Jesus Christ says about himself here in the parable that he was sent into the world in God's line of his servants, the prophets, and that he arrived to collect what is by right his. He says, I come to collect what is mine. It belongs to me. I earned it. Spiritual fruit in our lives is one aspect of what he has earned, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. So he comes every day into our lives to collect on what he has earned, you see. And then, of course, he sends us out. 
To those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. But all who reject, reject the one who was sent by the Father. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Why is this important? Because it is the nature of parables. Let me say that another way. We're just about done. A parable is not designed to be, now I'm putting my hand on my chin, not designed to be a chin-scratching, esoteric, abstract, oh, that was deep. That's not the point of a parable. Rather, the parable is supposed to be the Lord's teaching of assessment to his people. Knowledge, yes. Clarity, of course. Illustrative imagery to make a point, yes. But all of that unto covenant assessment. To say about it, I believe. I believe. I believe that the Father did send His Son into the world to collect what is His. What He is owed the fruit that belongs to Jesus Christ. There's a saying, it's like a theme statement. Uh, the one thing all, I'm going to use the term, Moravians say to one another in the Moravian Mission Society came from something probably two Moravian missionaries said in 1732 as they boarded a ship out of England heading after selling themselves as slaves so that they could get to the slave colonies, heading to the Caribbean islands where the slaves were kept, thinking that they would never come back and see their families again, which, depending on how you read the history, may or may not have been the case. These two young men in 1732, when they boarded the ship in England, heading as slaves, they sold themselves as slaves to preach the gospel in that environment, they said, quote, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Which is exactly what our text is saying. And may he, through us, receive that reward. Amen. Father and our God, how humbling it is for us to know that we have received your love. And that as a father pities his children, so you have pitied us in long-suffering and patient endurance of our sinful rebellion. But you have turned our hearts to you. You have called us and made us to be children of God. So that there would be and is, and more so in the future, fruit in our lives. The fruit of your work, the effect of your labor, to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ in humble ways, one to the other in this congregation, and as we speak to our friends and neighbors, the movement of the gospel. O oh Lord, may you receive the reward from us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation, let's sing this morning. We'll turn now to 440.
My Jesus, I love thee. We're going to sing these stanzas, but we'll sing three a cappella, Justin. So 440, and we'll stand to sing. We'll sing a cappella, stanza three. And then after the parting benediction, the doxology, well-known 493. Let's stand, congregation, and sing to